Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you guys. Uh, As mentioned, my name is Chris Henson, and I am one of the elders at Christ Community Church. And we actually met uh, Jonathan before we were part of Christ Community Church before he uh, was sent out from there to come up here. And man, it's just been a privilege over the years to see this church family grow. I know you're looking around the room right now going, cool growth, uh, cool growth, bro. Yeah, I hear you. No, minus, minus Corona, minus summer, man, God is doing incredible things here. And it's so cool to see what the Lord has been up to here at, uh, at Restoration Church. And We've been really happy to see how uh, God has grown Jonathan and Stephanie and their family, and so it's really good for us to be here today uh, with you guys. If you have your Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4 if you're not already there. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be continuing our study of Acts, the mission and movement of God. If you don't have your Bible with you, um, it'll be on the screen. And uh, what I'm going to do this morning is just pick up where Jonathan left off. So the last three weeks, Jonathan has been in Acts chapter 3, and Really what Acts chapter 3 starts with is it starts with this miraculous healing of this man who was born without the ability to walk. If you remember his sermon a few weeks back, he talks about how this man is at the wrong gate with the wrong expectation and then Peter and John roll up to the temple and this guy doing what he does asks them for money because that's his gig. That's what he does. But instead of getting charity and getting donations from people coming to worship, instead, Peter and John look at him and say, I'll give you what I can. Hey, get up and walk. And so this man is miraculously healed. He feels the life and 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 and, and, and just amazing movement just go back into his legs and his ankles and his knees are made strong. And dude gets up and leaps up just like any of us would if we had been lame for, for our life and we were miraculously healed. And he clings to Peter and John. And so he is walking around the temple and he's hooting and hollering and he's making all this noise. And if you're sitting there in the temple, you've got to be sitting back and going, isn't that the crippled dude? Why is he jumping? Like what on earth happened for this guy to go from being the crippled dude to running around, leaping, screaming, jumping, making all this noise, right? What on earth is all this about? And so this massive crowd of people begin to come around Peter and John as they're up there in the temple for the afternoon prayers. And Peter, being bold and faithful, says, hey, listen, I know you think this is cool, right? This is pretty amazing that this guy who was once lame, is now walking around. But let me tell you what's even better. It's Jesus who made this man well. And it's Jesus who's the author of life. And it's Jesus who was raised from the dead by God. And it is Jesus who is the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament. Therefore, if you can hear me, repent and turn from your wickedness to 
Jesus. And that's what brings us to the beginning of Acts chapter 4. This is where we see the effect of all of that. Chapter 3, those events, those are the cause. Chapter 4 is the effect. And we're going to examine the first part of that in verses 1 through 12 this morning. Quick show of hands, how many of you have ever been to a live boxing match or MMA event? That's amazing. I've never asked that question. It's not like I ask that on a regular basis. You don't want to be that guy in conversation when you're meeting someone like, hey, how are you? What brought you to the area? How many kids you have? Hey, have you ever paid to go and watch people beat each other up? Cool, great. Let's be friends now. Like, So I don't normally ask that, but I've never asked that question and had anybody raise their hand. This is great. And there are like five of you. So the one time that I got a response that was anything other than no was in an Uber in Washington, D.C. I was in the car with this driver. She was probably 5'4", couldn't have weighed more than like 120 pounds, just little, little person. And one of the things I do whenever I get an Uber is I'll just kind of ask some basic get-to-know-you questions instead of like, hey, drive me to my place person. Um, and so one of the questions I like to ask is, hey, do you, do you drive for Uber full-time? Is this your full-time gig or is this something that you just kind of do on the side? And so she says, this is something I do on the side uh, on the weeks where I'm not at work. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you're in D.C., maybe you work for the government, maybe you do some kind of trade, some kind of shift work where you're off during weeks. I'm like, well, what's your main gig? And she says, I'm an MMA referee. And I'm like, say that again? what do you do for a living? She's like, no, seriously, I fly out to Vegas every other week and I'm an MMA referee. And I'm like, so tell me about that. Naturally. And it was great. We had a great conversation, but it was just amazing to, to hear her talk about what it's like to be in the ring or in the octagon as people go toe to toe and just what the adrenaline and the conflict and the tension feels like. And this morning, as we come to Acts chapter 4, what we're doing is we are going ringside. In fact, we're not going ringside. We're going in the ring. We're about to see a conflict. We're about to see a fight. We're about to see tension that is thick and palpable. But it's not a physical fight. No one's going to get bloodied or beat up yet. It's a spiritual fight. It's a fight for control. It's a fight against power. It's a fight for truth because powerful people now in the book of Acts and moving forward are going to start paying attention to what the Lord is doing through the disciples. And this text marks the first time that we're going to see him step into the ring with each other. And then it will continue from this point forward. And so as we look at that this morning, as we look at this conflict this morning, there are three questions that I want to ask of us as a people as we study this together, because there's clear sides in this conflict, but there are sides that I think are true both then as they are now about what happens, the struggle that exists whenever we're confronted with whether or not to really trust and believe in what the Lord is doing. And so I want to ask and consider them together as we go through the text. So having said that, let's take a look at Acts chapter 4. And we'll begin starting in verse 1. It says, As they were speaking, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
First question that we need to ask from the Bible this morning is, whose kingdom are you serving? Whose kingdom are you serving? What do I mean by that? Look back at verse 1 with me. No sooner has Peter made his call for people to repent, then you have this highly influential and powerful group of people descend upon him. And it isn't like a polite nudging where they're like, hey, excuse me, can you get out of the way because I really want to see what these guys are saying just in case it's not okay. And No, I mean, this is confrontational and direct. They are moving with purpose toward these guys to stop them from whatever it is that they're doing. And so you've got three people groups represented here in this this group that is coming to silence Peter and John. You've got the priests, right? These are the guys that are basically leading worship at the temple. They're taking sacrifices. They're praying. That's their job. And then you've got the captain of the temple who's basically like the temple police. He's the chief of the temple police which is one of the most prominent positions in the temple. If you were a devout and religious Jew and you went to the temple in Jerusalem, you would know who that guy is because he's incredibly important. And then you've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a key sect of people in Judaism, right? If you've read the Gospels, you hear about the Pharisees all the time. They're another group, right? The Pharisees are a much larger group. They're the ones who are dedicated to studying the law and the prophets. If you ever read in your Bible and you see the scribes, it's usually talking about a Pharisee because the Pharisees were the ones who wrote the law and interpreted the law and copied the law and wrote laws about the law and wrote interpretations and writings about their interpretations of the law. I mean, that's what they did. They were all about the law. And then you've got other sects like the zealots. One of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. And then you've got the Essenes. Those are the guys who lived way out, and they're probably the kind of people that you would consider to wear tinfoil hats nowadays. So they were the tinfoil hat people that lived out way in the wilderness and wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then you've got the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a smaller group, but check this out. They were the ones who were in power. They were the ones who were in power power. It was their job to make sure that Rome and Israel cooperated and they benefited financially from making sure that it stayed that way. They were the ones who held the prominent positions of leadership. If you were a high priest in Israel, you were a Sadducee. Every Sadducee was, was every high priest was part of the, the Sadducee group. Um, they ran the temple complex. They basically made sure that everything that happened around the temple was done the right way and maintained order. And they also didn't see eye to eye with the Pharisees. So these are two groups that are in conflict with each other. They believed that the, the Old Testament, the first five books, the Torah, that was the word of God that you should focus on. And they dismissed the writings and the prophets, which the Pharisees didn't. And so they would argue with each other about what's true and what's right and what's, what's to be studied. But because they only focused on the first five books of the Bible, they also didn't believe in resurrection from the dead, which is a big problem if you're preaching Jesus' resurrection in the temple that they run, right? So why go into all that detail? Why tell you about all these groups? Because of what you see in verse 2. This highly influential and powerful group of people descend upon Peter and John greatly annoyed because what because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in jesus the resurrection of the dead when's the last time that you were greatly annoyed any of you are elbowing the person next to you i see you right 
No, you're like, hey, it was when I tried to get my kids out the door for church this morning. It was last time I logged on Facebook and saw people giving their opinions and then had to shut it down, right? No, I mean, whether or not, whatever it is, like, what's the last time you're greatly annoyed? I mean, I think about, um, like, old cartoons where you see people getting frustrated and their whole face gets red and then steam starts coming out of their ears. Like, that's what's going on here. The Sadducees are, are pushing through the crowd to get to these guys, and they're like, stop talking! I mean, they are upset. They are angry. They do not like what is going on here. Why? Because these two men, Peter and John, they're showing up on their turf. They're supposed to be in charge. They're supposed to draw the crowds. They're supposed to run the show. They're the ones who are supposed to be looked to as the example. They're supposed to be the ones who open up their mouth and speak and have authority and have people listen and go, that's right, that's true, you get it, you're in charge. And instead, you have these two guys drawing a massive crowd and standing up with authority and saying, thus saith the Lord. And what they're saying completely contradicts what they believe. Notice that they're annoyed because they're teaching and because what they're teaching about the resurrection. They despise the message these men are giving and the authority that they're claiming to have by giving it. Has anyone ever challenged you on something that you felt like was in your wheelhouse? Have you ever been responsible for a decision and someone came up and, and contested with you about it? Have you ever been in a position where you have felt threatened because someone else is on your turf? It's a very real emotion that we as people have, and it is exactly what the Sadducees are feeling right here. They are perceiving that what is going on is a direct threat and challenge to everything they stand for. So what do they do? Verse 3, it's too late in the day to convene the leaders for a hearing to investigate what's going on. So they lock them up in prison until they can hear him the next day. Now, contrast that with the response that you see in verse four. It says, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. What you see here at the, the beginning of Acts chapter four is two completely different and opposing responses, right? One group, hears the proclamation of the gospel. They hear the word of the Lord and their response is to say, man, I'm humbled by that. I submit to that. I'm convicted by that. That's true. I believe that. And then you have another group who hears the proclamation of the gospel, hears the word of God and shuts it down. Whose kingdom are you serving? right? When you're confronted with the truth of God's word, Christian, is your response to say, man, I lay down my rights. I lay down my preferences. I lay down my opinions. I lay down my ego. I lay down my sin. I lay down myself and I submit to this word because it is life. Or do you double down on yourself and say, yeah, I hear that, but you know what? That doesn't fit my worldview. I'll get to that later. That's not for me. That must be for someone else because I'm in charge of my own life and I make my own decisions. Whose kingdom are you serving? Yours or Christ's? I think sometimes as Christians, we get this right when it comes to the question of salvation. 
Hear me. I'm not trying to beat anyone up. This is as much for me as it is for you. I preach this to myself more often than, than even getting up and, and saying it to you. But, but I think we get this right when it comes to the question of salvation. I have no problem saying, man, if it's me on my merit to have the ability to stand before a holy God, I lose that battle every time. We love the idea of saying, you know what? I have zero rights before a holy God in my sin to claim any merit or good of my own. I I love the idea of serving Christ as king when it comes to eternal security. Man, I need him to save me from my sins and guarantee that I will spend eternity with him in heaven because I have nothing to bring to him of my own. But when it comes to everything post-trusting in Jesus, man, that becomes a battle, doesn't it? I know it does for me. I begin to build and we begin to build kingdoms around our preferences and our positions and our status and our limited worldview. And when the truth of the word brushes up against those things, our default is to do what the Sadducees do and say, you know what? I've heard enough and I'm just going to shut this down. I don't like how that sounds to me and it doesn't fit in my box. And so instead of being conformed and changed by the word of God, we fashion and we create these little kingdoms where we believe what we believe and we live like we want to live, and we don't really care to be confronted on areas of our life where we might be missing it, because as long as I'm not living in gross, open, socially unacceptable sin, then it all has a rubber stamp, because at least I'm trusting in Jesus to save me. We serve our kingdom. Listen, church, Jesus wants to speak into your marriage into your dating relationship, into your parenting, into your alcohol consumption, into your coping mechanisms, into your political viewpoints, into your coronavirus viewpoints, into your personal mental health, your personality, your time, your priorities, your service to the church, your finances, your internet usage. And he wants to bring grace and truth and perspective and life. And if you have circled one of those things and said, no one gets to speak into that, that's mine. I'm in control of that. Then you're likely serving your own kingdom. Is that not what the Sadducees did? Word of truth comes. Word of truth rooted in the scriptures that they claim to know. Even if you take the first five books of the Bible, I can prove to you the reality of a coming Messiah. And they've said, you know what? That doesn't fit in my box. I'm very happy being in control over here. And we never overtly say it like this, do we? We don't ever hear a sermon or read the Bible for ourselves or have a friend come to us and confront us and say, hey, I I think you're missing it here, and then go, you know what? I'm in charge of my own life. You can go away. Like, we don't do that, right? We do say things, though, like, oh, that's just my personality. That's just how I'm wired. That's just how God made me. That's just my bent. That's my cross to bear, you know. I mean, we can, we can Jesus that up as much as we want to, but the reality is, man, Christian, if your life has an area where it's not being conformed to the image of Jesus and you're living in sin, are you going to say it's, it's fine because I'm getting it right everywhere else? Or are you going to say, man, this is not about serving me and my preferences and my sin and my, my pet struggle. We all have them, but, but this is ultimately about his kingdom and he gets the right to speak into that my church, my community group, my pastors, my friends have a right to speak into that because at the end of the day, I want to be about him and his kingdom and his truth and not about my preferences. Whose kingdom are you serving? 
And so there's this confrontation in the temple. There's this arrest in the temple. And there's these two sides to this, this issue now. You, you now have people boldly following Jesus. And now you have people in power and influence who are opposed to it. What happens next? And so let's take a look in verse 5. And I want us to see the fallout. Verse 5 says this. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Second question I want to ask us from the Bible this morning is, whose power are you relying on? Whose power are you relying on? What do I mean by that? Next day comes, Peter and John are brought before this council. If you look in uh, Acts 4.14, just a couple verses down, you'll see that the man who they healed is with them. Don't know if he got locked up in prison with them overnight. It didn't tell us that, but he's with them. And so they're standing before this council of people. It's not specifically named here in Acts 4, but this council is the Sanhedrin. And we'll talk about what that means in just a second. So these men are brought into the council and they're called to give an account for what happened. And you see the question there in verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, I want to set the stage here. This, the Sanhedrin, this council, they're kind of like the religious cream of the, the crop, Right? These are, these are the spiritual bigwigs. These are the guys that everyone looks to and says, man, if you're smart and wise and religious, then you're one of these guys. These guys are the example to look at. They're kind of the Senate, if you will, of, of Israel from a religious standpoint. And then they've got everyone from the high priestly family listed out by name here. This is actually a group, the Sanhedrin. It's a group It says scribes and elders and rulers. It's a group of 71 men who sit in this huge semicircle and anyone who's brought before them is sitting square in the middle, right? And so this tribunal has has Peter and John and this man in the middle and they, they launch this question which basically amounts to, who gave you the ability or right to do this? How dare you come into our turf in our area and say the things that you're saying? Who gave you permission to do that? It's a complete power move. But notice what the beginning of verse 8 says. Peter filled with the Spirit. Peter doesn't get this question in panic. He doesn't get this question and draw on his own strength to give a defense before the authorities. In fact, the last time that you see Peter and the Sanhedrin It's when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, hours before he's crucified. And where's Peter? Peter is in the courtyard outside denying that he knows Jesus to a little girl. It's a complete reversal of events. Now Peter is square in the middle of the ring where Jesus once stood and filled with the Spirit. He says to them, what? He says, look, you and I, he says, look, you and I both know that this isn't about healing this guy. This is not about healing this guy. People don't get brought before the Sanhedrin for questioning because they've done a good deed to a crippled dude. 
That doesn't happen. The reason we're here is because Jesus, who you crucified, who God raised from the dead, remember the Sadducees are here, they don't believe in the resurrection, okay? We're here because Jesus made this man well. He confronts the Sanhedrin with the message of the gospel in complete trust and reliance upon God to be the strength, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this morning I ask you, Christian, whose power are you relying on? You have two natures. Galatians 5 says, inside of you, you've got your sinful nature and you've got the life that the Spirit produces. Galatians 5 says these two things are in opposition to each other so that you don't do what you want to do. Our call, Galatians 5.25, is to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. I think it's really easy in our churches and in our Christian subculture to substitute living in, and relying on the indwelling and guiding presence of the Holy Spirit because we can just as easily manufacture outward righteousness easy enough that we never really at a soul level have to rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us and empower us and work through us. Because we can show everyone that we've got it together. We can say the right things. We can show up to our missional community groups or to church and know what to do to cause people to think we've got it together. What these verses should cause us to do, this passage that we just read, what it should cause us to do is sit back and go, oh my God, look at this group of powerful men. Look at how noteworthy and intimidating they are, how much smarter they are, how many more answers they must have. Put yourself in Peter and John's shoes for a minute and imagine this council of wise, older men who are venerated and and seen as immensely important, sitting around you, asking you questions whose answer you know could ultimately lead to your imprisonment or death. And this passage should cause you to sit back and go, what an incredible display of power. But who's really in power here? Who's really in power in this situation? Who's really walking away from that confrontation and winning the battle? It's not that group of men, is it? Peter and John, these uneducated, common men, walk in there filled with the Spirit, and there is no contest. There's no fear. There's no intimidation. There's this beautiful reliance upon the Spirit of God to face whatever is in front of them. The battle didn't even start before the Lord declared victory. Christian, whose power are you relying on in the day in and day out? Mamas, who are you relying on to empower you to love your kids well and not go postal? Dudes, who are you relying on to stop faking it and just show up and be bold and righteous and biblical and Christ-loving instead of being lazy and complacent? Ladies, who's giving you words of life deep in your soul when you live in a culture that if you get online, even at all, tells you a narrative that you're not pretty enough or connected enough or smart enough or capable enough and that someone out there is always doing it better than you? Are you grinding it out on your own? and white-knuckling it and using church on Sundays as a shot in the arm to give you a push into the next week until you can come back here again? 
Or are you humbly relying on the Holy Spirit that meets you in the quiet and leads you to life? Who is with you whether the battle that you're fighting is one in front of the mirror or in front of the computer screen or in the quiet of your home or with work or with a relationship and is able to embolden and empower you to fight well just as Peter and John did before arguably a much more intimidating situation than you and I have ever faced. I hope you realize the Holy Spirit who is with them there is the one that lives inside you as a guarantee of what is to come. He hasn't changed. Praise God. The Holy Spirit is with us so that our life would not just be tolerable, but would be richly and beautifully centered on Jesus. So whose power are you relying on? If there's something I believe we see both here and then we're going to continue to see throughout the book of Acts, it's that when God's people live in submission to him and submit to the obedience and the direction of the Spirit, God will move in incredible ways, both to draw men and women to himself, but also to mature men and women in Christ. But it depends on whether or not you choose to yield to and rely upon Jesus and the power of his Spirit or not. Finally, last thing I want us to look at this morning is the, the end of, of Peter's speech here in Acts chapter 4. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. We'll ask one more question and unpack it. Verse 11 says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Last question I want to ask us from the Bible this morning is who or what are you trusting for salvation? Who or what are you trusting for salvation? Right? Jesus is the cornerstone. He holds the whole structure together. He is the gauge off of which all things are true. There is salvation in no one else. Pay attention to what's being said here. This isn't a statement that just says Jesus saves, right? Like we know that's true. Jesus saves. Like, that's, that's right, that's true, that is being communicated here, but it's more than that. This statement is a statement that says you could search the world over and there is no other name, no other person, no other system, no other structure, no other ideology or religion or teaching or promise that could ultimately deliver you from the rightful wrath of God towards sin and bring you into a right relationship with himself. There isn't. There's no other thing. Your spouse can't save you. Your college degree can't save you. Your kids can't save you. Your boyfriend or girlfriend can't save you. Pastor Jonathan can't save you. Church participation can't save you. There is nothing that will ultimately have you stand before a holy God and be right with him, both in the moment you die and in the in-between as you and I walk through life. There is nothing that saves except Jesus. There's no possibility where God shows up and says, man, gosh, I've been alive since, well, eternity, and I'm really surprised to tell you this, but congratulations, you figured it out. You literally don't need me. I don't know anybody, whether they know Jesus or not, who would look in the mirror and say, this is as good as it gets, and I'm really happy with it. 
I don't care what anyone tells you about how perfect their life is, how much they enjoy it. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, if this is as good as it gets, I'm fine because I've got it all together. We need Jesus. On my best day, gosh, I'm a mess. And I live in a world that is a hot mess. And I'm around people that are a mess. And we all need Jesus. Not just to make us right with him so that we don't end up spending eternity apart from him. I need Jesus to take the things in me which have yet to be redeemed and continue to save them. I'm not perfect yet. Neither are you. Beautiful thing about the gospel is Jesus doesn't just promise to give us a one-way ticket to heaven one day. He says, I will save you eventually, eternally, but I will continue saving you now. That's the church word sanctification. It is taking that which is not holy and making it holy. The only one who can take what is unholy and make it holy is the one who is holy. Right? Who or what are you trusting for salvation? Church, our mission and our call is to be people who preach that message. Peter stood up in front of the Sanhedrin He told the religious leaders of his day that they were missing it. He longed for them to know the truth. And you and I are surrounded by people who are missing it. And it's our joy to point them to the only source of life and hope and salvation. Relying on the power of the Spirit because we are people who are about his kingdom and his fame and his glory and not our comfort or our preference or our popularity. And it's also for us to remember and recall each day, right? We don't trust Jesus once for salvation as a transaction that gives us eternal life. No, we also trust Jesus daily for the continued work of salvation that he promises us. Now listen, I'll say this and then, and then I'm done. Look, I've been around church long enough to know how trite and cliche statements like trust in Jesus daily is. Like if you can find it on the cover of a journal at Lifeway, it's been overused. I get it, right? I understand, right? So you might hear me say that this morning and be like, dude, what does that even mean? I hear that all the time. Like, what am I supposed to do? Listen, I'm going to tell you this and and then we're done. Here's the deal. This is going to sound like the most incredible oversimplification, but until I and the people I know get this, it's relevant and true. There's nothing in the world, in America today, praise God, that can prevent you from waking up in the morning and picking up this book and saying, Lord, I need your truth. I need you. I need you to speak into my life. I need you to speak into my brokenness. I need you to speak into my sin. I need you to guide me. I need your truth because I don't have this all together. I don't have this figured out. I need you. There's nothing that can keep you from waking up in the morning and choosing to draw near to God and saying, Lord, your word says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Lord, complete the work in me today. Move the ball one yard further down the field. I want to know you more. There's nothing that can keep you from taking time to meet with Jesus. There's nothing that can stop you when moments of panic and overwhelm and anxiety and stress and difficulty come from humbly coming before the Lord and saying, I don't know what to do, but you do and I need you. Help me, Jesus. Help me know how to live well 
despite this thing for your honor and glory. Help me. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I know that's so simple. I know that that sounds so simple. I know that sounds like something that if you were a, a Christian in middle school and high school, you heard it at summer camp and, and D-nows. And, are those even a thing anymore? Yeah. You've heard that a million times. But Christian, it, it doesn't need to be more difficult than that. It doesn't need to be more difficult than that. The God of the universe has made himself knowable to you through his word through meeting in his church, through being with his people. And this idea of which kingdom we serve and whose power we rely on and who we're trusting for for salvation, he's literally given us the map. It's up to us to believe that and to go, this is true. I don't want that. So Restoration Family, my prayer this morning is just that you will be a people who are about Christ's kingdom and in relying on his spirit will trust the saving work of Jesus to secure you and sanctify you day by day and that as you do that, you'll take that message to the world just as the disciples did here in Acts. I promise you it's worth it. Let's pray.